0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 124. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on July 31st, 2023, in a secure, undisclosed location near Tupper Lake, New York. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning, without presentism, or at least as little as possible. Well, we are well along on our summer road trip. I put out the last episode early in the morning on July 25th, and then almost immediately departed New Orleans by car for the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York, a distance of around 1,600 miles. But it was worth it. As I write these words, it is 68 and gently raining, and after the last month in Austin and New Orleans, it's glorious seeing as how i am on vacation and it is challenging to find a good place to record in this little house and i can only be anti social so much episodes will be catch as catch can for the next few weeks i did however bring along both the microphone and tote bags of books so we'll be able to get out a couple episodes at least the idea for this episode came to me in a flash as I thought about an email from Robert from Portland, a long-standing and attentive listener. Here are the pertinent bits of his email, quote, My recollection is that your description of what presentism means has varied, at least in emphasis. More recently, such as in the Rhode Island podcast, you talk about limiting one's judgment of behavior long ago, at least as it edges toward the present-day deplorable. I will call this judgmental presentism. I recall that in one or more earlier podcasts, you talked about the problems with studying history with a goal of drawing lessons for the present— and how that leads one to ignore or undervalue facts that conflict with a lesson one thinks one is drawing. I will call this lesson presentism. Although I had not thought about it before your podcast, I subsequently saw it everywhere I turned. I have noticed with a few history lecturers and with virtually every audience question or comment made after any history lecture, an obsession with drawing connections to or lessons for the present day. Some will even say that history is only worth learning if it is being used to affect one's present-day behavior or outlook. In my view, lesson presentism is more of a problem or at least more annoying than judgmental presentism. Lastly, I think you have been on more solid ground recently in saying that your podcast tries to minimize presentism rather than claiming that the podcast is without any presentism. Back to me. Regarding the last point, I agree. Of course, I didn't use the word any to modify presentism, but it's fair to say that is implied. Anyway, I never actually thought that I could entirely escape presentism. But as a podcast tagline, it is much cleaner to say without presentism than with less presentism than you've come to expect from other history podcasts. Robert's main point that many teachers of history and most of its audience want history to teach particular lessons about the present day, is exactly right. This idea, which Robert calls lessons presentism, has long been known in the history game as usable history, and it has been controversial since the term was coined early in the 20th century. Anyway... All of this reminded me of an essay written by Gordon Wood, who at almost age 90 is the dean, as it were, of American history in the 18th century. Of the historians of his generation, Wood has been a vocal critic of the notion of usable history. That has put him at odds with younger historians who approach their craft with activist ambitions and who have been loudly critical of him, especially online. My strong suspicion is that Wood doesn't waste time concerning himself with his mentions on Twitter. Excuse me, X. But they still pop up several times a week, which is a loose measure of how many historian brains Wood occupies rent-free. I, however, rather agree with Wood's take on the matter of thinking historically, so I'm going to read you big excerpts from that essay, which is the introduction to his 2008 book, now 15 years behind us, the purpose of the past. Before we jump in, it's worth noting that the argument over the purpose of history, now very much a topic not only in professional circles, but often in disappointingly stupid political discourse. Has been around a long time, and it will never be resolved. In fact, David Mutadell, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, a historian at the London School of Economics, just this spring published a history of the argument over the purpose of history, as it were, titled The Political Role of the Historian. I'll put a link to Mottadel's essay, which isn't apparently paywalled, in the episode notes on the website. Anyway, Wood's essay also lays out much of the history of the debate over the purpose of history, I think more accessibly than Matadel. You will also hear in it, I hope, arguments you have heard me make, some of which I had already come up with before I read Wood. Throat clearing thusly accomplished. Here is Gordon Wood in 2008 from the introduction to his book The Purpose of the Past, with some Occasional interjections from your podcaster. Quote, During the past several decades, we have experienced the culmination of what began over 40 years ago, what one historian has called a historiographical revolution. Since the 1960s, new people have entered the profession and new subjects have been opened up for research. Instead of writing about statesmen, generals, diplomats, and elite institutions, historians began concentrating on ordinary folk and marginal people—the poor, the oppressed, and the silent. By the 1970s, this new social history of hitherto forgotten people had come to dominate academic history writing. Although some historians continued to write political and institutional histories, most began writing about everything else but politics. In fact, there's scarcely an aspect of human behavior that historians over the past generation have not written about, from divorce to dying, from the consumption of goods to child-rearing. Historians began delving into the most private, subjective, and least accessible aspects of the past— Including marriage, sexual relations, and child abuse. Social science, especially anthropology and ethnography, enabled some historians to reconstruct from riots, rituals, and other kinds of popular nonverbal behavior in the past the beliefs and attitudes of the masses of ordinary men and women who left no written record. Others used social science to compile quantitative data on economic development, population growth, and rates of marriage and death. The profession turned out more and more complex, technical and specialized renditions of the past that fewer and fewer people were reading. Several indices revealed that the American people were becoming less and less interested in the kind of social history academics were teaching and writing. From 1970, 71 to 1985, 86, years when there was a boom in student enrollments, the number of history degrees granted by all American colleges and universities declined by almost two-thirds, from 44,663 to 16,413. A drop in membership of the American Historical Association in the 1970s and 80s was itself a sign of this weakening interest in history. The evidence compiled by Peter Novick in his That Noble Dream, published in 1988, reinforced the impression of a decline in academic history writing. Novick argued that the historical profession during the 1970s and 80s seemed to have lost a unified sense of purpose. Without a clear sense any longer of America's role in history, the discipline seemed to be coming apart. In no other field was there such a widespread sense of disarray. In no other discipline did so many leading figures express dismay and discouragement at the current state of the realm. Many historians tended to see themselves as simply a disorderly collection of specialists solving technical problems and talking mostly to one another. Back to me. There's a great deal of gnashing of teeth and renting of clothes on History Twitter— sorry, History X, over the virtual absence of tenure-track jobs for newly minted history PhDs. The reasons offered are many, including disinvestment in public universities, obsession with STEM, the increasing desire of parents footing astronomical tuition bills to ensure their children can earn a living and service their debt when they graduate, the growth of area studies at the expense of history, and so forth. But rarely, if ever, do very online historians talk about what it might take to get more students into their lecture halls. As long-standing and attentive listeners know, I have thought since I started this podcast, and since before I read Wood's essay, that a lot of the usable history being taught today is boring, precisely because it's predictable. Check out the second half of my revised introduction episode, roughly episode 65. For the argument, I think that is too sensitive a topic for many of the modern historians at whom Wood points his grizzled finger. It would require a wholesale revision in how they think about the profession, so they do not talk about strategies for recruiting more students because they don't like what those strategies might entail. That's my, perhaps, poorly informed opinion. Back to Wood, quote, At the same time that Novick was reaching his pessimistic conclusions, some historians began reacting against the disarray and calling for a return to narrative, to the kind of storytelling that, presumably, history was always noted for. Still others, however, wanted no part of a return to a traditional grand narrative, which they associated with a sort of history writing that had kept women and minorities out of the national story. They wanted instead to promote multicultural diversity, and discovered they could best do so by transforming social history into cultural history. Social history tended to be structurally descriptive and not ideally suited to the historian's desire to see people in all their variety and distinctiveness. By contrast, cultural history offered a way of penetrating through the large-scale economic and social structures of society, into the many different identities and cultures of people in the society. Although the new cultural history tended to increase the fragmentation and disarray, it soon came to dominate the profession. History departments appear to have stopped hiring anyone but cultural historians, the assumption being that cultural history is the only kind of history worth doing. This new cultural history is undergirded by theory, and theory has become increasingly important to historians. Perhaps theory has always been part of historical reconstruction. Certainly, many of the new social historians have sought to apply theories from sociology, economics, and psychology with varying degrees of rigor. Marx and Freud, of course, had always been important in this respect. But the shift to cultural history seemed to require even more elaborate theories. And following the lead of literary scholars, historians in the 1980s began importing into their cultural history new theories, especially those of French intellectuals such as Jacques Derrida and Michael Foucault. Implicit in many of these theories, which tended to emphasize the textual construction of reality, was an epistemological skepticism that worked to erode established and conventional ways of doing things. Literary scholars first began using these French theories to break down orthodox canons of literature in order to bring in new writers, new works, and new perspectives. But the epistemological skepticism and blurring of genres that seemed to have made sense for some literary scholars had devastating implications for historians if historians began doubting that there was an objective past reality that they were trying to recover and began thinking that what they did was simply make up the past and write something that was akin to fiction, then they were not just clearing the ground for new kinds of approaches and subjects, but were actually undermining the ground for any sort of historical reconstruction at all. Suddenly, it seemed as if Hayden White's contention that historians were actually writing forms of fiction, which he had been making for many years, was at last being vindicated. Although few historians were willing to go as far as white, many were eager to make explicit the use of theory in their history writing. Some professors actually began criticizing the dissertations of their students for being under-theorized. Many feminist historians in particular were keen to import theory into cultural history. I recall listening to a feminist historian in the 1980s talking about using the ideas of Foucault to get rid of all the male-dominated history and clear the way for a new feminist history. When I observed that this seemed tantamount to using a nuclear weapon that could be subsequently used against the new feminist history itself, she replied, We'll worry about that later. Most historians have been much less self-conscious about their use of theory. Many historians have absorbed from the theories no more than the desire to write about issues of race and gender, and this desire has led to many stimulating and worthwhile contributions to our understanding of the past. Our knowledge of slavery in America, for example, has been greatly amplified over the past 40 years. And no one can deny that our appreciation of women's history has been similarly enhanced. But perhaps one less beneficial effect of the new cultural history has been to widen the gap between academic and popular history. Perhaps the two kinds of history have never coincided. But in the 1950s, academic historians such as Richard Hofstetter, Alan Nevins, Eric Goldman, Daniel Boorstin, and C. Van Woodward certainly wrote history that appealed to both academic and general readers. That is much less true today. Consequently, popular historians who have no academic appointment, such as David McCulloch, Walter Isaacson, Ron Chernow, Thomas Fleming, and Stacey Schiff, have successfully moved in to fill the void, left by the academic historians preoccupied by issues of race, gender, and multiculturalism. Hey, by the way, that's what this podcast is a void filler. Sounds vaguely surgical. Anyway, back to wood. The result of all this postmodern history, with its talk of deconstruction, decentering, textuality, and essentialism, has been to make academic history writing almost as esoteric and inward directed as the writing of literary scholars. This is too bad, since History is an endeavor that needs a wide readership to justify itself. Now here comes the part that perhaps coincides with Robert's email. What is the justification of history writing? Why should we study or read history? Something history teaches lessons, but I don't believe that history teaches a lot of little lessons to guide us in the present and the future. It is not, as the 18th century thought philosophy teaching by example. Yet by disparaging the capacity of history to teach lessons, I don't mean to suggest that studying the past can't teach us anything. If history has nothing to say to us, then it wouldn't make much sense to study or teach it or read about it at all. History is important to us and knowledge of the past can have a profound effect on our consciousness, on our sense of ourselves. History is a supremely humanistic discipline. It may not teach us particular lessons, but it does tell us how we might live in the world. Some have said that history for a society is like memory for an individual. Without memory, the individual is isolated, cut off from where he has been and who he is. But creating memory for a society is a tricky business. It can have very perverse effects, as some scholars have discovered over the past several decades. Back to me. At this point, Wood talks about the tension between the construction of historical memory and the criticism of it. Critical historians in Wood's formulation want the public to know that George Washington did not cut down his father's cherry tree, or, presumably, that his dentures were made from the teeth of enslaved people. Now back to Wood. During the past-generation historical scholarship apparently has fulfilled its destructive role only too well, and not just in America. As the historian Carl Shorsky pointed out, history conceived as a continuous, nourishing tradition no longer had the same meaning for society, or at least not for that part of the society that read academic history. History has now clearly become the enemy of memory. History, says French historian Pierre Nora, is perpetually suspicious of memory, and its true mission is to suppress and destroy it. But, Wood responds, of course it cannot. Memory, or what David Lowenthal has called heritage, is necessary for any society. Heritage may be a worthless sham, its credo is fallacious, even perverse. But writes Lowenthal, heritage, no less than history, is essential to knowing and acting. It fosters community, identity, and continuity, and in the end, makes possible history itself. By means of it, we tell ourselves who we are, where we came from, and to what we belong. We thus tamper with our heritage, our memory, at our peril. Briefly back to me... Super long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that in the first introduction to this podcast, I quoted Jill Lepore, who I suspect only occasionally sees eye-to-eye with Gordon Wood in such matters. She wrote in her short book, This America, quote, Nations, to make sense of themselves, need some kind of agreed-upon past. They can get it from scholars, or they can get it from demagogues, but get it they will. Wood and Lepore agree on this, as do I. If we have seen anything in our recent politics, Americans will passionately seek an agreed-upon past, even if it requires coercion to get the agreement. That is why the politics over history now, in 2023, have become so fraught. Now back to Wood, who offers a concession, quote, Many of the new cultural historians seem not to want to destroy memory as much as reshape it and make it useful to their particular cause, whatever it may be. Many of them have an instrumentalist view of history and see themselves essentially as cultural critics who wish to manipulate the past for the sake of the present. Rather than trying to understand the past on its own terms, these historians want the past to be immediately relevant and useful, They want to use history to empower people in the present, to help them develop self-identity, or to enable them to break free of that past. In their well-intentioned but often crude efforts to make the past immediately usable, these scholars undermine the integrity and the pastness of the past. So we have some anthropologists claiming that the Iroquois Confederation was an important influence on the framing of the Constitution in 1787. Although there is not a shred of historical evidence for this claim, the fact that it might raise the self-esteem of Native American students is sufficient justification for some scholars that it be taught. Even many of those historians who concede the pastness of the past and investigate the past as a foreign country Do so primarily as anthropologists or social critics, seeing in the strange ideas and behavior of past peoples either alternatives to or object lessons for a present they find oppressive and objectionable. So these sorts of unhistorical historians ransack the past for examples of harmonious, well-knit communities that we today ought to emulate, Where they seek out abuses of patriarchal power in the past that we in the present must avoid. Much of the work of these present-minded historians thus does violence to what ought to be the historian's central concern, the authenticity of the past, and commits what the great French historian Marc Bloch called the most unpardonable of sins, anachronism. I am not suggesting that history has no connection to the present, I'm not advocating that history become antiquarianism. Quite the contrary. It is natural for historians to want to relate the past to the needs and problems of the present. Indeed, historical explanation is only possible because we today have different perspectives from those of the historical participants we are writing about Most new historical investigations begin with an attempt to understand the historical circumstances that lie behind a present day problem or situation. It is not surprising that our best recent work on the origins and nature of slavery coincided with the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s, or that our recent rich investigations into the history of women grew out of the women's movement of the past three or four decades. This is as it should be. The problems and issues of the present should be the stimulus for our forays into the past. It is natural for us to want to discover the sources, the origins of our present circumstances. But the present should not be the criterion for what we find in the past. Our perceptions and explanations of the past should not be directly shaped by the issues and problems of our own time. The best and most sophisticated histories of slavery and the best and most sophisticated histories of women soon broke loose from the immediate demands of the present and have sought to portray the past in its own context with all its complexity. The more we study events and situations in the past, the more complicated and complex we find them to be. The impulse of the best historians is always to penetrate ever more deeply. Into the circumstances of the past and to explain the complicated context of past events. The past in the hands of expert historians becomes a different world, a complicated world that requires considerable historical imagination to recover with any degree of accuracy. The complexity that we find in that different world comes with the realization that the participants were limited by forces that they did not understand or were even aware of forces such as demographic movements, economic developments, or large-scale cultural patterns. The drama, indeed the tragedy of history, comes from our understanding of the tension that existed between the conscious wills and intentions of the participants in the past and the underlying conditions that constrained their actions and shaped their future. Back to me. Here, Wood is singing my song. Actors in the past who did things we now regard as horrible were under the influence of forces that even they did not understand. They were prisoners of their time and place, just as we ourselves are. Imagine you are a young sailor escaping poverty on your cousin's ship, sailing out of Plymouth in, say, 1568, and he orders the capture of a Portuguese ship and its cargo, which includes enslaved people whether or not you have the luxury of sufficient moral education and material comfort to develop misgivings. Instead of becoming a mutineer and probably being hung for it, you go along and you do your best to contribute to the voyage's success. Are you forever to be condemned as a slaver, as if that were all you had done in your life? Or would we recognize that more or less anybody then alive in that position would have done the same thing. If that is true, what was your actual moral agency? Longstanding and attentive listeners know who I'm talking about, but the same sort of understanding of the tension that existed between the conscious will and intentions of the participants in the past and the underlying conditions that constrain their actions and shape their future, in Wood's words, applies to understanding the actions of anybody in the foreign country that is the past. Back to Wood, quote, To be able to see the participants of the past in this comprehensive way, to see them in the context of their own time, to describe their blindness and folly with sympathy, to recognize the extent to which they were caught up in changing circumstances over which they had little control, and to realize the degree to which they created results they never intended To know all this about the past, and to be able to relate it without anachronistic distortion to our present, is what is meant by having a historical sense. To possess a historical sense does not mean simply to possess information about the past. It means to have a different consciousness, a historical consciousness. To have incorporated into our minds a mode of understanding that profoundly influences the way we look at the world. History adds another dimension to our view of the world and enriches our experience. Someone with a historical sense sees reality differently, in four dimensions. If it is self-identity that we want, then history deepens and complicates that identity by showing us how it was developed through time. It tells us how we got to be the way we are. And that historically developed being is not something easily manipulated or transformed. We have heard a lot over the past several decades about the cultural construction of reality, the so called postmodern sense that the world is made by us. Historians have little quarrel with this notion of the cultural construction of reality, as long as this is understood as the historical construction of reality. Too often, postmodernists think that by demonstrating the cultural construction of reality, they've made it easier for men and women to change that reality at will. If culture and society are made by us, they can be remade to suit our present needs, or so it seems. But anyone with a historical sense knows differently, knows that things are more complicated than that. History, experience, custom... Developments through time give whatever strength and solidity the conventions and values by which we live our lives have. Those conventions and values, however humanly created, are not easily manipulated or transformed. They, of course, have changed and will continue to change, but not necessarily in ways we intend or want. Back to me... Wood is making a point here that is essential to understanding the sophisticated argument, as opposed to the shallow arguments made by politicians and social media influencers, over the teaching of critical race theory in public schools. In very brief terms, I expect I'll tackle this topic in detail in another episode, the postmodernists may be right. In their idea that our cultural reality today is in part the product of narratives that the powerful advance at the expense of the powerless. That does not mean, as Wood is pointing out in this passage, that one can change that cultural reality by engineering and promoting different narratives. Our history, experience, and customs absorbed over generations that turn into centuries, ...are the foundation of our conventions and values. That foundation cannot be rebuilt... ...merely by reframing the narratives we tell about ourselves. Or so Wood argues, and I agree. Briefly and very much as an aside... ...the teaching of critical theory... ...and the teaching of the ugly aspects of our history... ...are different things entirely. We can and should teach the ugly parts... ...as we do in this podcast... But that does not mean, in and of itself, that we either accept or reject critical theory. Rejecting critical theory does not mean, at least as a categorical matter, that we ought not teach the most shameful things in our past. It would mean, however, that we examine those shameful things with a historical sense. Someday I'll devote an episode to that, but now's not the time. Back to Wood. Quote, History offers a way of coming to terms with an anxious present and an unpredictable future. Realizing the extent to which people in the past struggled with circumstances that they scarcely understood is perhaps the most important insight flowing from historical reality. To understand the past and all its complexity is to acquire historical wisdom and humility, and indeed, a tragic sense of life. A tragic sense does not mean a sad or pessimistic sense of life. It means a sense of the limitations of life. Unlike sociology, political science, psychology, and other social sciences, which try to breed confidence in managing the future, history tends to inculcate skepticism about our ability to manipulate and control purposely our destinies. History that reveals the utter differentness and discontinuity of the past tends to undermine that crude instrumental and presentist use of the past that we Americans have been prone to. We Americans resist this kind of historical consciousness. We do not want to hear about the unusability and pastiness of the past or about the limitations within which people in the past were obliged to act— we do not want to learn about the blindness of people in the past or about the inescapable boundaries of our actions. Such a history is no immediate utility and is apt to remind us of our own powerlessness, of our own inability to control events and predict the future. Back to me. At the risk of controversy, it seems to me that American policy, and especially American foreign policy in the years since 9-11, has suffered from a deficit of the historical sense that Gordon Wood describes. American presidents and their advisors have fairly consistently overestimated their capacity to shape the future and underestimated the consequences of making the attempt. None of the administrations in this century seem to have been aware of, as Wood would say, our own powerlessness, of our own inability to control events and predict the future. This was especially tragic in the case of George W. Bush, who by all accounts read more history than any president since at least Kennedy. That does not mean, apparently, that he had developed the historical sense that Wood writes about. Now back to Wood for the closing bit. Quote, Yet this kind of historical consciousness... This emphasis on the complexity of human affairs does have its dangers for our moral life, as Richard Hofstetter pointed out 40 years ago. The great fear that animates the most feverishly committed historians, Hofstetter wrote, is that our continual rediscovery of the complexity of social interests, the variety of roles and motives of political leaders, the unintended consequences of political actions— the valid interests that have so often been sacrificed in the pursuit of other equally valid interests, may give us not only a keener sense of the structural complexity of our society in the past, but also a sense of the moral complexity of social action that will lead us toward political immobility. Understanding the complexity of human affairs, seeing clearly both sides of all issues, knowing that few things work out the way we intend may breed in us caution and indecisiveness. Imbued with a strong historical sense, we are apt to become one of Nietzsche's historically-minded men who could not shake himself free from the delicate network of his truth and righteousness for a downright act of will or desire. A sense of history, Neustadt and May admit, can be an enemy of vision. Fortunately, however, there seems to be little danger of our becoming too historically-minded in America today. We Americans have such a thin and meager sense of history that we cannot get too much of it. What we need more than anything is a deeper and fuller sense of the historical process, a sense of where we have come from and how we have become what we are. This kind of historical sense will give us the best guide we'll ever have for groping our way into an unpredictable future. Back to me. For my part, not being trained as a historian, although having had the benefit of being raised by one, it took me a long time to gain anything like the historical sense that Wood talks about. I hope it comes through in the podcast. The effects on me personally have been entirely for the better. The greatest Impact has been, as Wood suggests, the coming to terms with an anxious present and an unpredictable future. Headlines that this or that is the worst thing ever are silly to me. And in my serenity, I now am quite sure that the next election is highly unlikely to be the most important ever. I know that big changes take a long time, and that when they do come, even when they are widely hoped for changes they will come with consequences that will humble us or which we will very much regret i also know that there is no arc of history that bends toward justice we have ameliorated great injustices and will again but in the doing of it we have created and will create new injustices that we then have to contend with this is not depressing to me in the least. Rather, it's humanizing. I've hoped you've enjoyed this unusual episode, or at least found it thought-provoking. For me, it helped me bring together my own thinking about why it is important and beneficial to develop a Woodsian historical sense. I also hope that you weren't much surprised by my own perspective. If so, I have not been doing this podcast quite as well as my aspirations for it. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. You can buy the books I mentioned through the links in the episode notes on the website, and follow me on x website formerly known as Twitter, to stay up to date and sample my musings on mostly, but not only, history-related topics. Until next time.